So if you want to take your places, and we're going to read the entire chapter. For those of you that haven't been here, we are going through the entire book of Joshua, so we are arriving in chapter 5 today. Joshua chapter 5, verse number 1. And it came to pass when all the kings of the Amorites, which were on the side of Jordan westward, and all the kings of the Canaanites, which were by the sea, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of Jordan from before the children of Israel until we were passed over, that their heart melted. Neither was their spirit in them any more because of the children of Israel. At that time the Lord said unto Joshua, Make these sharp knives and circumcise again the children of Israel the second time. And Joshua made him sharp knives and circumcised the children of Israel at the hill of the foreskins. And this is the cause why Joshua did circumcise all the people that came out of Egypt that were males, even all the men of war, died in the wilderness by the way after they came out of Egypt. Now all the people that came out were circumcised. But all the people that were born in the wilderness by the way as they came forth out of Egypt, them they had not circumcised. For the children of Israel walked forty years in the wilderness till all the people that were men of war which came out of Egypt were consumed because they obeyed not the voice of the Lord unto whom the Lord sware that he would not show them the land which the Lord sware unto their fathers that he would give us a land that floweth with milk and honey. And their children whom he raised up in their stead, them Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not circumcised them by the way. It came to pass when they had done circumcising all the people that they abode in their places in the camp till they were whole. And the Lord said unto Joshua, This day have I rolled away the reproach of Egypt from off you. Wherefore the name of the place is called Gilgal unto this day. And the children of Israel encamped in Gilgal, and kept the Passover on the fourteenth day of the month at even in the plains of Jericho. And they did eat of the old corn of the land on the morrow after the Passover, unleavened cakes and parched corn in the selfsame day. And the manna ceased on the morrow after they had eaten of the old corn of the land. Neither had the children of Israel manna any more, but they did eat of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. And it came to pass... When Joshua was by Jericho, that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, there stood a man over against him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went unto him and said unto him, Art thou for us or for our adversaries? And he said, Nay, but as captain of the host of the Lord am I now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and did worship and said unto him, What saith my Lord unto his servant? And the captain of the Lord's host said unto Joshua, Loose thy shoe from off thy foot, for the place whereon thou standest is holy. And Joshua did so. And let's, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for freedom we have in our country to study your word. We, I ask that it would be profitable, that you would uh, give us wisdom, learn those things that uh, would bring us, uh, make us more like Christ. And I ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we see in verse number one that everyone in Canaan quickly learned of Israel's arrival, their crossing of the Jordan River. There's a description here in verse number one of the 
kind of some of the layout of the land or where these various people groups lived. And um, Joshua would have known this. This wouldn't have been anything new to him. He was one of the spies that had personally gone and and uh, looked at the land. And he had actually come back to Moses in Numbers 13.29. And he had told Moses precisely where these different groups of people lived. He told Moses which one lived in the mountains, which one lived near the sea, and so forth. So, this is uh, not unexpected. This is what Rahab had said. This is just further evidence that uh, the people's hearts were melted. They were terrified of what was coming. They, they knew what was coming. Um, they were discouraged. They were dispirited. And, and we don't know exactly how quickly the news traveled. News traveled at that time, even though... Horses had been domesticated. They news still traveled primarily by foot, and yet uh, Jer- Jeremiah fifty-one thirty-one tells us that. And yet they knew uh, it didn't take long. They were they were terrified. Also, notice in verse one that the enemy believed that God had dried up the waters of the Jordan River. Uh, they didn't question it like so many do today. Uh, they didn't attribute it to some. Uh, feat that the Israelites had somehow accomplished on their own, no gimmick or anything like that. They they understood that it was that it was Israel's Lord who had done this for the Israelites. In Exodus twenty three twenty seven, God had said that He would make Israel's enemies fearful, and in just the previous verse that we looked at last week, Joshua four twenty four. This was God's purpose. Uh, look at verse 24, that all the people of the earth might know the hand of the Lord, that it is mighty, that ye might fear the Lord your God forever. God wanted everyone to fear Him. And in Psalm 53, 5, the Bible says, God can make the wicked to fear where no fear is. And there was good reason to fear at this point. Verse number 2, Again, we see Joshua carrying out God's command to circumcise. This was not his own idea. It's probably not the most pleasant task that Joshua would have chose for himself. But yet he doesn't contend with God. He doesn't argue with God. He just goes about getting it done. Circumcision is something that even today is primarily done um, mostly for religious reasons. Um, Nearly 100% of Israelites today and Muslims are circumcised. Most American males are circumcised. But it's also, it has become also uh, emphasized more as a sanitary measure. And um, if you've ever changed a baby's diaper, you understand the importance of thorough cleanliness. Uh, the World Health Organization recommends that that particularly in Africa, males are circumcised because there's, uh, they've noticed that all things being equal, that the spread of disease is much more frequent in those that have been uncircumcised. Those, there's a, a lot of AIDS epidemic in Africa. And so that's also one of the reasons that it's emphasized today. God had told uh, Abraham, turn back to Genesis chapter 17, We'll see when when God began to institute His covenant with Abraham, and this was a part of that. 
God had said that it was to be done when a child was eight days old. It is believed that that is a time when it is about as painless as it's going to be. I know when I called the vet a while ago to have some dew claws removed from some puppies, they said, well, you bring them in when they're five days old. That's when it's going to be the least painful, before they've had a chance to get older and develop a lot of sensitivity. And they must be right. I took the puppies in, and they were sleeping when I took them in. They took them in the back for five minutes, and then they brought them back, and they were still sleeping. So it must be pretty, well, it must have been the, the right time. In Genesis chapter 17... God institutes this covenant with with Abraham. We're going to start in verse number 1, even though the majority of, of what we're going to look at is 7 through 14. And when Abram was 99 years old and 9, the Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am the Almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect. And I will make my covenant between me and thee and will multiply thee exceedingly. And Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with thee, and thou shalt be a father of many nations. Neither shall thy name any more be called Abram, but thy name shall be Abraham. For a father of many nations have I made thee. And I will make thee exceeding fruitful, and I will make nations of thee, and kings shall come out of thee. And I will establish my covenant with me and thee, and thy seed after thee in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. And I will give unto thee and to thy seed after thee the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Notice that the the land is part of this covenant. God said unto Abraham, Thou shalt keep my covenant before, therefore thou and thy seed after thee in their generations. This is my covenant which ye shall keep between me and you and thy seed after thee. Every man-child among you shall be circumcised. And ye shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a token of the covenant betwixt me and you. And he that is eight days old must be circumcised among you. Every man-child in your generations, he that is born in the house or bought with money of any stranger which is not of thy seed. He that is born in thy house and he that is bought with thy money must needs be circumcised and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised man child whose flesh of his foreskin is not circumcised, that soul shall be cut off from his people. He hath broken my covenant. So all males were to be circumcised, no exceptions, even those that were not natural born descendants of Abraham. Of course, we see in verses 11 and 12, there are the details of the procedure. And this was to be an outward sign of their inward dedication. This was to be a mark that they were God's people. It's interesting in in, uh, Joshua chapter 5 that God chooses now to to request that this be done, to, to demand that this be done. You know, after they are... After they have crossed the Jordan River, um, you would think that if if it was man's idea, if Joshua were thinking of doing this, he would probably think this would be the most inopportune time to do this. They're now much more vulnerable to the enemy attack than they would have been on the other side of the Jordan River. 
and Joshua know that the people know that there's going to be a time of recovery that's going to be required for this. And yet God says to do it now. And so that's just an illustration of God's protection of them. You know, the enemy was right there. And yet God demands that they do this. Uh, Turn to Jeremiah chapter four, verse four. Look at a few other things regarding this. Jeremiah chapter 4. So circumcise yourselves to the Lord and take away the foreskins of your heart, ye men of Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my fury come forth like fire and burn that none can quench it because of the evil of your doings. Now, again, as stated earlier, uh, physically, uh, many believe that this passage is actually teaching that physical circumcision was more sanitary. Uh, The analogy there is that God many times likens the sin in our lives to being uncircumcised. In other words, we have things in our life that interfere with our being in a right relationship with the Lord. And, you know, without being too graphic, the extra skin uh, that is removed during circumcision isn't in and of itself wrong, but it's representative of something that interferes with making it easier to keep oneself clean. In the same way that there could be things in our life that aren't necessarily wrong, but they're interfering with our being in a right relationship with the Lord. And so those things should be removed. Jeremiah chapter, turn to Jeremiah chapter 31. Many times the, the analogy in the, in the scripture is that our figuratively, our uncircumcised hearts are what keep us from being in a right relationship with the Lord. The removal of sin in our life presents spiritual disease. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34 says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which is my covenant they break, although I was a husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them. Saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and will remember their sin no more. Notice there in verse 33, the emphasis of the new covenant will be that God will write it in their hearts. The the new covenant is always explained to us in the New Testament as being much better than the Old Testament, having a much better emphasis than the Old Testament covenant. They had ignored God's commands to do this while wandering in the wilderness, and yet God wants them now to get this done, to, to, to in a sense, re-identify themselves as his people, as, as the ones who are part of the Abrahamic covenant. Now turn back to Joshua chapter 5. 
Joshua chapter 5, notice in verse number 2, this is referred to the, the second time. It says, and circumcise again the children of Israel the second time. Now turn back to Exodus chapter 12. The first mass circumcision took place back when they were getting ready to leave Egypt in Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12, verse 43. It says, And the Lord said unto Moses and Aaron, This is the ordinance of the Passover. There shall no stranger eat thereof. But every man's servant that is bought for money, when thou hast circumcised him, then shall he eat thereof. A foreigner and a hired servant shall not eat thereof. In one house shall it be eaten, and thou shalt not carry forth aught of the flesh abroad out of the house, neither shall ye break a bone thereof. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. And when a stranger shall, shall sojourn with thee, and will keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised, and then let him come near and keep it. And he shall be as one that is born in the land, for no uncircumcised person shall eat thereof. And, you know, we'll, we'll kind of make reference to that later. No uncircumcised person shall eat thereof. One law shall be to him that is homeborn, and unto the stranger that sojourneth among you. Thus did all the children of Israel as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, so did they. And it came to pass the selfsame day that the Lord did bring the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their armies. So, this is this circumcision that God is demanding of the Israelites now that they are in the promised land is the second time. They have neglected this, this teaching for 40 years. Now, turn back to Joshua chapter 5. Joshua chapter 5, verse number 3. And Joshua made him sharp knives and circumcised the children of Israel at the hill of the foreskins. Now, notice in verse number 8 that this was to be done to all the nation. All the people. It says, and it came to pass when they had done circumcising all the people. And this would have been every male between eight days old and 40 years old. Uh, by all accounts, uh, everything that I, that I looked at, and, and you know, look at the census back in Numbers chapter 26, this would have been over a million circumcisions. Quite an, quite an assembly line. And of course, you know, the emphasis there is God makes it clear in both verses 2 and 3 that the knives were to be sharp. It, you know, it's commonly understood that things are easier with a sharp knife. Most, you know, you would think it would be just the opposite, but most, there are more accidents where people are cut when they're using a dull knife than when they're using a sharp knife. Because it's more difficult to, to do whatever it is you're trying to do. Now, you know, as Pastor has been teaching us how to study the Bible on Wednesdays, I'm a Bible literalist, but, you know, there's three or four verses here that tells us Joshua circumcised the people. I doubt Joshua circumcised anybody. That would have been 12 men every second for 24 hours if, if there was a million people. He's not a spiritual Zorro. 
It just, it, there's no way that he could have, that he could have done that. But look at verse number eight. It says, when they had done circumcising. So I think that makes it clear that obviously there were people, Joshua was just the leader. We understand that. You know, we say Bill Gates built Microsoft or Steve Jobs built Apple. They have thousands of employees in those companies. We understand that they didn't really build, you know, they didn't really pull everything off themselves. So Joshua, uh, you know, he's just the leader. He's the one seeing to it that the commands of the Lord are carried out. Now also we see here, this was called the Hill of the Foreskins. Uh, again, you know, there's, there's a lot of people that are going through this procedure. And, you know, it's, as I was doing some research, uh, this is still the most, uh, common surgical procedure in the world today. You know, there are many people who this will be the only surgical procedure that they will under, undergo in their entire life. So, you know, there's, there's a lot going on here. There's, there's a, you know, obviously probably quite an assembly line approach here. Now, verses 4 and 5, again, kind of underscore the reason that this needed to be done. Uh, this new generation is uncircumcised. They're not in a right relationship with God. They're not in a right covenant with God. The people that had left Egypt had been circumcised, but they're all dead except Joshua and Caleb and those between 40 and 60. You remember when they left that only those that were under the age of 20 were going to be allowed to survive long enough to cross the Jordan River. So all of those between 40 and 60 are circumcised. So all of those between the ages of 8 days and 40 years, those are the ones that need to be circumcised. And this is why it's called the the second circumcision. Now, verses 6 and 7. Why hadn't they been circumcised? And there are several theories. There are several ideas that, that people have put forth. Number one, simply a failure of leadership on Moses' part to see that it was done. If we go back to Exodus chapter 4, it seems evident this wasn't something that Moses was particularly interested in. You know, he remember he had the the dispute with his wife, and and she ended up uh, performing the circumcision on Moses' sons because he had neglected to do that. And so, uh, you know, many people believe, believe this was just simply a failure of of, of leadership on Moses' part. I, I believe that also to be the case. Um, at least partly, um, you know, we read there in Genesis chapter 17 where God had made it perfectly clear that all descendants, all male descendants of Abraham were to be circumcised. And yet, for some reason, this hadn't been carried out. Second reason, many believe that God had intended that the Israelites not be circumcised because of his anger at their unbelief. Uh, Verse number 7, I, I think, seems to suggest that that wasn't the case. You know, and look again at verse number 7. It says, the last part of the verse says, because they had not circumcised them by the way. That seems to assign the blame to those that had been, you know, in the, in the 40 years of wilderness. That, you know, they hadn't done it. They were supposed to have done it. It seems that's what I think that seems to be teaching. But... Um, you know, there's some understandable arguments for the idea that God uh, had intended them not to be circumcised. Um, 
We see back there in Genesis chapter 17 that God said part of the covenant that he had established with Abraham was the land of Canaan. And God had remarked in his, he had stated in his fury that these, that this generation wasn't going to get to go into the promised land. That they were in a sense cut off. And in Genesis chapter 17, uh, the Bible says there in 17.14 that uncircumcision is the sign of being cut off. Being cut off from the God's blessing, from God's promise. And so, I can see a little bit of rationale there that, uh, you know, again, some argue that God intended for them not to be circumcised because, you know, that was part of his that was part of his judgment. On the other hand, the generation with God was with whom God was the most angry was those that had already died in the wilderness. And it was those who who were already circumcised. They had all been circumcised there when we where we read about that in Exodus chapter 12 and the. The generation that is uncircumcised are the ones that, in a sense, God wasn't angry with because they were the ones that were under 20 when, and the ones that had been born into the, you know, into the when they were in the 40 years of wilderness. So that, that kind of seems to somewhat undermine that argument also. A third reason. Well, I guess that's kind of the second and the third reason, again, the, the idea of being cut off, um, you know. And part of the part of the argument there is that part of the emphasis there on circumcision really being a key component of the covenant, along with being in the land, is that God waits until they have crossed the Jordan River to ask to demand that this be done. He could have had them circumcised just a few days earlier on the other side of the Jordan River. And so again, that that's Additional evidence that, that some would point to that would suggest that that God, you know, was was actually waiting until they were in the land to see that this was done, that this would somewhat be a kind of a renewal of the covenant, that it would be, you know, a time of great enthusiasm, kind of a new beginning, a new start. You know, there there might be some you know, I can see some rationale there. Notice in verse number six that Outward, outward actions of obedience are supposed to be a demonstration of our inward heart. Notice there in the middle of the verse, it says, which came out of Egypt were consumed because they obeyed not the voice of the Lord. Both, both outward actions and a right heart with God are, were required and are required. Um, you can have the, the, the right actions and, and yet not have the right heart. Uh, you know, it's it's hard to make the argument that your that your heart is right with God if if you don't show any signs of being one of God's people. Um, you know, you you can go through the motions today, like many of them went through the motion went through the the motions at that time. You can, you know, be baptized and be a church member and and do various things, and yet your heart can be far from God, and and God frequently calls our attention to that. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul makes this argument in his letter to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 10.
says, Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and did all eat the same spiritual meat, and did all drink the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But now notice verse 5. But with many of them God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. So they were, they were going through the motions. They were showing the outward signs. But God wasn't satisfied with that. He wanted their heart to be right with Him also. Again, today. You know, many, many in, in the world today, you know, they, they might show the right signs. They might be a church member. They might be baptized. They might be this. They might be that. They might be doing all kinds of things. But they might all also be in rebellion against the Lord. Uh, both have to be present. The, the heart has to be an indication. You know, the, the heart has to be right with the Lord in order, in order for those outward acts to be of any value. Turn to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, and, and Paul, actually many times in the New Testament, I mean, we could turn to numerous passages where Paul makes the argument that for the New Testament believer, you know, the, the physical aspect of circumcision is just completely irrelevant. It's, it's you know, on, on, on par with whether or not you, you know, uh, other things. I mean, it just, Romans chapter 2, verse 25 for circumcision is verily, for circumcision verily profiteth if thou keep the law. But if thou be a breaker of the law, thy circumcision is made uncircumcision. Therefore, if the uncircumcision keep the righteousness of the law, shall not his uncircumcision be counted for circumcision? And shall not uncircumcision, which is by nature, if it fulfill the law, judge thee, who by the letter and circumcision dost transgress the law? For he is not a Jew which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. So Paul's making the argument that circumcision is meaningless, even to the Jew, without personal dedication to the Lord. The important circumcision is spiritual circumcision, the circumcision of the heart. The idea is cut away the sin from your life and be dedicated to God. That is a right relationship with the Lord. Outward acts alone are not the sign of one of God's people. Inward acts of the heart are the marks of God's true people. Now, Paul is not making the argument that external signs are of no value. They are. They show, hopefully, they're supposed to demonstrate what is going on in someone's heart. Notice Romans chapter 4. Turn to Romans chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. And Paul's answering the question here, why was Abraham, why was Abraham justified? Verse number 1, we'll, we'll, we'll just look at verse 1 and then skip to 11. What shall we say then that Abraham, our father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found? Well, let's read verse number 2. For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. Verse number 11 and he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had yet being uncircumcised, 
that he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also. And the father of circumcision to them who are not of the circumcision only, but who also walk in the steps of that faith of our father Abraham, which he had being yet uncircumcised. So the same thing is stated there in verses 11 and 12. Abraham had faith. That's what, that's what justified him. It wasn't the physical sign, the physical act of circumcision, even though that was required. Genesis 12.4, Abraham acted in faith at the age of 75. Genesis 17.24 tells us Abraham was circumcised when he was 99. And yet, Paul's arguing here in Romans chapter 4 that Abraham was justified when his faith was put in action in Genesis chapter 12, long before he was circumcised. So it was the faith that was the critical thing. So external, external pretenses must be met by a sincere heart. Now turn back to Joshua chapter 5. Joshua chapter 5, verse 6. Notice the last half of the verse. It says, Unto whom the Lord sware that he would not show them the land, which the Lord sware unto their fathers that he would give us. Okay, so which is it? Is there a contradiction there? God swears that this generation isn't going to see the, get to go see the land, but he had promised Abraham that his descendants were going to get the land, would get the land. It wasn't that every descendant would get the land. This generation is not going to be included. They are not going to enjoy the benefits of the promised land. Not every one of, Abraham, not every one of Abraham's descendants was going, to get, was going to be included in that promise. Now vote notice verse number eight. It came to pass when they had been when they had done circumcising all the people that they abode in their places in the camp till they were whole or healed. They didn't have all of the antiseptics and sterilization techniques that we have today. I don't know how many knives they had, but I know when I go donate blood at the Red Cross, they use a different needle for everybody and they throw it away and I'm glad they do and uh you know, I don't know that they probably had a million knives at this time. They needed time to recover. A couple of a month or two ago, a, a lady called. As many of you know, we occasionally sell Great Dane puppies, and so a lady called and she she said that she called on like a Tuesday, and she said that her and her husband were going to be coming out a couple of days to pick up one of the puppies. So she shows up and she's by herself and. So she immediately begins to tell my wife, she says, yeah, my husband couldn't come. He, he called me on his way home from work and said he was about ready to die, that he was sick, you know. And she says, you know, stating it like it was, you know, about as factual as the law of gravity. You know, all men are wimps. And I'm just standing there like, okay, I must be invisible. She's like, I'm totally impervious to my presence. And she says, I just told him to take a couple aspirin and go home and think about having a baby. I was just, okay. I'm just standing there and her and my wife are having this conversation. They needed time to recover. Verse number 9 says, And the Lord said unto Joshua, This day have I rolled away the reproach of Egypt from off you. Wherefore, the name of the place is called Gilgal unto this day. Now this this verse... You know, there's some debate about what the reproach was, but I, I just think that in general it was the, the, the reproach of the whole thing. I mean, it was the whole 40 years, the, all the, you know, 
some people would say the reproach is referring specifically to the, the fact that the people were uncircumcised. Some people would say it was referring specifically to the fact that they hadn't obtained the land for those 40 years. I just think it's, it's the whole, the whole 40 years. Everything that went on, it was, it was a reproach to them. It was, it was shameful for them that they hadn't, they hadn't realized the, the promises of God. But I mean, they finally have, you know, the reproaches finally rolled away. I mean, it, it's, you know, it, it's a wonderful thing. That's what Gilgal means, uh, rolled away. We sing a, there's a song in our hymn book called When My Burdens Roll Away. It's a wonderful song. I mean, it's, it's, it's a great illustration. You know, when our, when Christ died on the cross for our sin, our sin was rolled away. And we, you know, in a sense, we have a new beginning. And they had a new beginning. You know, this was a chance for them to, Put those previous 40 years behind them. I mean, we, we don't get do-overs. I've got regrets, but I can't go back and relive the previous 40 years. All I can do is resolve to be faithful to the Lord going forward. That's, that's what any of us can do. Um, so this is, you know, this is, this is a, this is a good time for them. Um, don't languish in the past. Um, ultimately, the, the removal of you know the greatest removal of any reproach that we will suffer will that we suffer will be of course when we're with the Lord someday when we're in the kingdom that will be the the greatest removal of any reproach shame some shame is deserved um, in this case they were a rebellious people they they deserved the shame um Shame can be used very positively. You know, if it motivates us to remove that which is the reason for our shame, well then, you know, it's caused it, it's it's accomplished its purpose. That's when we're shameful and rightfully so, then we should we should repent. I mean, there are many people today who have no shame because they're unwilling to repent. They're unwilling to see what they're doing as being displeasing to the Lord. There's other shame that isn't deserved. We know in, in Acts 5.41, the disciples rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for the cause of Christ. We know in Hebrews 12.2 that Christ said that he despised, the Bible says he despised the shame of the cross. That's shame that isn't deserved. But many much shame is deserved, and this was shame that they deserved. But God is very gracious. He's very forgiving. He has put that aside. He has rolled away that, that reproach finally. Verse number 10 says, And the children of Israel encamped in Gilgal and kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month. Again, we see it is of utmost importance to worship God even while they're busy, even while they're in pain, even while they're not, you know, in their mind, maybe not such a convenient time. It's debated whether they kept the Passover the previous 40 years. Calvin thinks they did. I don't know how they could have. In light of what we read in Exodus chapter 12, where God emphasized over and over that, you know, absolutely no uncircumcised person was, uncircumcised person was to participate in the Passover, was to eat the Passover. It seems to me that if they had participated in the Passover the previous 40 years, God would have probably dealt pretty severely with that. I mean, I don't know that. But again, as I read Exodus chapter 12, it just seems that 
this was, you know, like circumcision, this was probably something that had been neglected. But again, there's there's some debate on that. I, you know, I don't know that I can be dogmatic on on that. Verse number eleven, it says, and they did eat of the old corn of the land on the morrow, after the Passover, unleavened cakes and parched corn in the self in the self same day. And the manna ceased on the morrow, after they had eaten of the old corn of the land, neither had the children of Israel manna any more, but they did eat of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. Now this old corn, most most uh, most believe that that's a reference to the produce of the the Canaanites that you know they had fled and, and abandoned their gardens. You know that we'll see in chapter six they were. They were locked up strongly in the in the walls of Jericho and, and in the other cities, but they had probably certainly uh, you know farmed the land outside those walls, and now they've abandoned that, and, and Israel is beginning to, to feed off of that, and the manna has ceased. And this is a fulfillment of the of God's promise. This is the promised land. It's gr- it's full of great provision. It's the land of milk and honey. The, there is no need for the manna anymore. God wants them to live off the fat of the land, and you know He delivers on that promise. The manna was good, but now they have something better. And you know the extraordinary means of manna had ceased, but the people weren't to be any less thankful for what God had done for them. I want to read a paragraph from uh, from this book by Dale Ralph Davis. I think it illustrates the point pretty well that we should be no less thankful. He says, It is still God's provision, whether it is manna that falls from heaven in the wilderness or grain that grows in the ground in Canaan. Clarence McCartney told the story about Dr. John Witherspoon's wisdom in this regard. Witherspoon was a signer of the Declaration of Independence and president of the then College of New Jersey. He lived a couple of miles away from the college at Rocky Hill and drove horse and rig each day to his office at the college. One day, one of his neighbors burst into his office exclaiming, Dr. Witherspoon, you must join me in giving thanks to God for his extraordinary providence in saving my life. For as I was driving from Rocky Hill, the horse ran away and the buggy was smashed to pieces on the rocks, but I escaped unharmed. Dr. Witherspoon replied, Why, I can tell you a far more remarkable providence than that. I have driven over that road hundreds of times. My horse has never run away. My buggy has never been smashed. And I have never been hurt. Pretty good illustration. Thank God that Pastor's grandchildren weren't hurt in that fire. But thank God how many of us haven't had a fire. Good illustration. John MacArthur, I don't know how many of you listen to his radio program. I was listening to his radio program this week. He's been playing uh, sermons from the series that they had out at their church. He's got a strange fire conference where the purpose of the conference was to refute the claims of the charismatics that miracles confirm God's working among his people. And if God isn't actively performing miracles, he's not actively working among his people. And it's pretty good. I've been listening to it this week. And really the argument is God is constantly at work among His people. We don't need to 
We don't need to see miracles every day or even once in our life in order to be confident that God is working. God is working amongst us every day. He's working amongst the Israelites here and giving them the milk and honey that He had promised them. They're going to be living off the land of Canaan. You know, the fact that the, the miracles of the manna cease doesn't make God any less God. It doesn't make His means of provision any less, you know, any, there's no less need to be thankful. We have much to be thankful for. Well, we don't, I, I'm not gonna get into verses 13 through 15 since we're about out of time. I'll save those until next week. Anybody have any comments they want to share before we, before we wrap up the lesson? Anyone? All right, you're dismissed.